Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Sue Brake, who is the Chief Investment Officer of the Future Fund. And today we'll be looking at 15 years of the Future Fund, a little bit different than our usual podcast. Sue, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Walter. It's great to be here. We're looking at the Future Fund today, and uh, it consists of multiple funds. Um, the main fund is around 200 billion, there's six funds in total. But when we go back to sort of the early days of the Future Fund when it just established, it was funded by partly government surpluses and a large stake in Telstra that was sold over time. So you get this money in, I think it was about $15 billion. It's 2007 and the world starts to collapse because we're just at the start of the global financial crisis. Can you take me through it, what you know, sort of happened there during that time and what the uh, investment approach was? There's a book that we're releasing by the time of this podcast. I think it'll be uh, available. So it'd be great for you to put a a link uh, in your comments on it called Celebrating 15 Years of uh, the Future Fund. And it's a really good celebration of, you know, who we are and what our background has been and what our purpose is. And it's got great stories. It's It's a book. It's stories from various stakeholders of those early days, including, you know, the chair at the time. And uh, of course, Peter Costello, who was the treasurer who set the the fund up. Um, so I have enjoyed the stories in that book uh, because I wasn't here. I was uh, sitting in a different sovereign wealth fund during the global financial crisis, but I certainly remember the market action uh, very well, as you as you do when you get caught in those kinds of events. But the stories that I've I've heard told and are told in in, in the book are really, uh, I think, uh, a testament to bravery, I think, and also show how the total portfolio approach and the joined up investing that the future fund is known for, you know, it was in these moments that that was forged. And why do I say bravery? The fund had actually been running for a couple of years and there was, everyone's looking and everyone has an opinion. So there's this sort of pressure. uh, And sometimes you put it on yourself as a, a manager to get set, you know, to get the right level of risk that you need in order to meet your long-term returns. And it's a, it's a large amount of money, so it takes a long time to, you know, build those positions. And so there was an enormous amount of pressure. I, I remember it sitting sitting across the Tasman and, and watching to, to sort of chase the market because that was such a strong market in that um, 2006 and 2007 period. And the bravery really was a fledgling organisation 
realizing that something was unusual about this particular market um, activity and to be brave enough to pause and to, to, to not keep building the equity position. So the portfolio was largely cash when the, the, the crisis hit because they had paused the equity buying program. And that ended up being um, prescient. I mean, we would never uh, believe that we have the ability to pick these things, but sometimes pausing is the right thing to do to get more information and to understand, you know, what's going on in the market. So, the, you know, the, the bravery to, to do that and the joint decision-making between the board and the agency in terms of, you know, what, um, you know, not excessive risk means in terms of the, the appropriate amount of risk was pretty key to, to making that brave decision and having it, you know, solidarity around it. Like it was, a, it was a jointly made decision that everyone was comfortable with. Obviously, it's a lot easier to be comfortable with when it turns out to be a good decision. It's a lot harder when it, <laughs> when it goes the other way. But in this instance, you know, it, they were right. There was something unusual about what was going on in the market. And it, uh, it fell precipitously at the right time. So you mentioned the um, the investment target of the of the fund, where it has a CPI target, I think four and a half to five, and it is supposed to be achieved without taking excessive risk. But how do you define excessive risk? Yeah, this is the art of investing, and I think that it, it's an ever and always conversation between well, with the board and and whoever's p- pulling the levers on behalf of the board to understand interpretation of the mandate, all aspects of the mandate, but particularly. What is excessive risk? And firstly, no two mandates are ever identically worded. And then secondly, the interpretation of that mandate, you know, really belongs with the guardians of that fund to understand and interpret what the stakeholder meant when they used certain words. So it's a very nuanced, joined up, speaking all the time, running risk appetite sessions to to try and really be clear about what excessive risk is. And some organizations will treat excessive risk as a structural number, i.e. it's a certain hypothetical drawdown that, you know, you don't want to get worse than. And once you've set that number, that's what it means. For us, it's dynamic. Everything's always dynamic. We don't like to make things easy for ourselves. So it is a live conversation all the time about the risk we're taking and all the different facets of risk, not just a, a drawdown in the equity market and whether or not that is consistent with our mandate. One of the things that the the founders of the fund did extremely well is to put the purpose or the mandate at the centre of all the decision-making. And so we're quite benchmark agnostic, but we're certainly not mandate agnostic. We look through the benchmarks and just think about the mandate in all the investment decisions that we make. And there were a lot of those conversations during the GFC, I'm sure, about what is excessive risk. And we had them again during the market turbulence months of the of the pandemic. Yeah. So how does the pandemic sort of compare to the global financial crisis? It was a much shorter period of drawdown and, and more or less recovery. How was the experience? Yeah, I think I saw a graph at one stage that if you changed, was it weeks into months, that was the identical path, or it might have been weeks into days, like it was just so short and sharp, but the, the pattern was still the same. It just happened over a much more compressed time frame. And, you know, having been through the GFC and and this pandemic, you know, the GFC taught us to have crisis plans and to have mapped out what's going to happen to our liquidity and have break glass preparations. And does that make the ride a little bit more comfortable the second time around? I probably have to say, yes, it does, but it's still an uncomfortable ride. You know, it's a real time, what is happening? You know, what risks are we running? 
but we were well prepared for it. And you may have seen uh, some of the stuff that we've put out. We made uh, over 30 decisions of a billion or more over that very short space of time. So we were definitely making the most of the turbulent conditions. And in some instances, we were shoring up defensive levers and, you know, it wasn't all we got this right and we're ready to jump in and make some money. You know, it was a combination of all of those things to make sure that we're, you know, focused on on the mandate um, and, and the risks that were also prevalent during that period of time. So I, you know, would we have liked to, to have had longer to buy things? But I think that's the nature of the market we have now. When we would spot a dislocation, it closes pretty quick. Like it was fast and furious is the way I would describe that particular period. Yeah. But, you know, we're, we're pretty nimble. We're good at making decisions quickly. It was a terrible thing going on, but I will say it was a positive experience for the team and, and for me because it was an opportunity for the investment model to be used in earnest. And the joined up approach and the total portfolio approach is made for those sorts of situations. And to be able to use it in earnest was, was a pleasure. And it it really vindicated that it's the it's the right model for us. Yeah. So you mentioned thirty decisions of of a billion dollars. Can Can you give an example of of some of those decisions? I, I remember I, I spoke a while with uh, Ben Samuels on the alternative side, and I think he was very busy during that time. Yes. Uh, can you give some examples of that? Well, some of it was in, in Ben's area. Obviously, he was the the head of uh, alternatives at that time. He's now the the deputy CIO for portfolio strategy. But at the time, running the, the the large portfolio of hedge funds we have, we a lot of our crisis plan is in what kind of defensive assets can we have specifically for crises. And uh, we had a, a number of hedge funds that were there not to make money in good times, but to, you know, to, and they worked beautifully. But what working means is that you know you liquidate them over that period of time because that that's the liquidity that you you wanted to preserve but the relationships are such and we've been you know we designed these things together with the manager they know we'll be back it's not a you know a reluctance on their part to let us have our money back because it's it's business for them and so that all just worked textbook it's kind of funny leading up to the the pandemic we'd started to speculate that maybe the Australian dollar wasn't as procyclical as it has been or, or sort of a risk-on, risk-off currency the way it had in the past, you know, for various reasons, looking at the the flows and, and the yield differences and those sorts of things. And so we'd started to wonder about that. We hadn't made any changes. But in a crisis, it still, it still did what it, you know, so maybe it's less procyclical in normal, you know, in the full range of normal market conditions. But in a crisis, it certainly did what it, we thought it would do and provided protection as well in terms of, uh, you know, the amount of foreign currency exposure, short Australian dollar exposure we have versus perhaps, uh, you know, a more typical fund with a similar mandate. We, we, we do rely on that lever a lot and we have less, we try and make more return from non-equity sources um, so that we can still get the returns we need, but with a lower risk portfolio. And that all worked, that all worked really well as well. So some of those, uh, some of those decisions were, investing into dislocated markets very quickly with managers, taking liquidity from some managers to repurpose. There was currency transactions, equity transactions, credit transactions, like it was just a very, we met daily as a, as a, um, as an investment committee and uh, my team at the time, the portfolio strategy team, 
you know, started the day at four in order, or at least four, in order to have sort of formulated what, you know, what's going on and what we need to do so that by the 10 o'clock investment committee meeting, we were ready to, okay, this is what we, this is what we need to be doing, need to be doing now. It was a exhausting but fascinating time. Yeah. Adrenaline, ad- adrenaline producing time. Yeah, well, you've joined a fund at an interesting time in its uh, yes. life because I think you joined uh, uh, just under three years ago, thrown in the midst of this pandemic. And we'll talk a little bit later as well. You were in the middle of a strategic review as well. You know, how, how did you deal with all the different demands on you? I, it was really, I had only been there a few months when, um, when we went into lockdown. And so there are strengths when you start in, in organizations as well as weaknesses. The weaknesses are, you know, I haven't, I'm not fully fluent on the Future Fund way. And it shouldn't be complex, the Future Fund way, but it is nuanced in terms of, and everybody comes with a, an expectation of what it's going to be like to work in this total portfolio environment. And particularly for me, because I'd, I'd been in a, a sister organization that has a similar um, one, and at Willis Towers Watson, I'd been a student of these sorts of approaches. So I thought I had it nailed. I thought I understood the future fun way. And um, I had to unlearn a whole lot of that thinking in order to really hear and see the way in which the organization does run its investment model. Can you give an example of that? Okay, so let's talk about joined up. Joined up, in my mind, was really messy, collaborative, pop-up, say something kind of, collab- you know, collaboration and joined up, kind of the same word in my vocabulary. Joined up for the future fund is a very specific joining of the top down with the bottom up and the disciplines we have around ensuring that the sector team heads and teams are able to bring their profound expertise within their area to a uh, a place and then venture into the, the top-down territory enough without having to be an expert on it, like we don't want generalists. And similarly, the top-down, you know, and venture a little bit into the, the sector head territory. And you have this incredibly rich conversation in that nexus between all of those experts. And so that was a lot more, um, it was different to what I had, you know, I had in my brain. You know, the, the nuances around the kind of culture that you need to have in order to run an investment model like that. And, you know, often the, the, I'm going to call it the good guy persona is sort of the, the, the you know, and that me coming from an investment banking background or a banking background, you, you know, there weren't good guys in that environment. You had to watch your patch and defend your patch and, and um, prove how good you are every day. But it's less of a good guy culture and more of a brave, humble and brave, you know, like pre- prepared to be wrong but prepared to speak up even though you might be wrong. It's a, it's a really interesting take on, on what that is. So there's all sorts of wonderful aspects of that. And, and one of the things we're doing uh, 15 years in is to build a, a Future Fund Academy, Academy, which is going to take some of the nuances of that and make sure that we leverage the fact that we've still got people who have been there for a very long time at the Future Fund. Our, our turnover is low. And develop some training that allows that legacy, and it's not a legacy, it's actually the way we do things. It's the investment model and the culture to thrive and grow and get better and better. This academy, who's that aimed at? Is that to people coming in or or all the way to, you know, uh, new recruits? Both. So it is, and, you know, we, we kept growing and, 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 and hiring through the, 
the two years we've had so far of the pandemic. So there's a few people there that have not had the intensive, I'm going to call it the rough stare from across the table when he's trying to get you to understand something, you know, that, and we are, are incredibly in your face. We're incredibly intense in terms of making sure that this way of thinking, this framework for how we make really good investment decisions is sort of carried forward. So that we've got a bit of a backlog. Um, we've we've done the first module of the new academy. It, it is on culture, but you know we have aspirations to make it deeper and richer, uh, and we'll keep supplementing with that. And and you know we're still um, designing the academy and looking for the right person to to lead that academy. But it's it's exciting for us, and and a, you know a sign of the stage of growth that we're at. We're no longer small enough that you can get by with with word of mouth. It needs a bit more formality and structure so, so no recruits will get a uh, rough guide to the future fund uh, sort of manual not so rough you know <laughs> intense guide intense guide. yeah fair enough so you described that culture of, of um, a robust discussion of the top down and bottom up coming together and partly this relates as well to the fact that the future fund doesn't necessarily have a strategic asset allocation and i think it's been described to me in the past as you basically have to fight for your money. You have to show that your investment is is the best investment and it's better than the other ideas out there in the context of the broader portfolio. How, how does that sort of translate? I, I had in there a question, is there sort of a beauty parade of asset allocation or asset heads that pitch to you or how does it go? Yeah, I think that's a really good example of the nuance of the approach because it's very much not that. It is not, and I have seen it operate in other organizations where there is the lack of clarity does make people, you know, go a bit feral and and get their elbows out and fight for their patch because there's no clarity about whether or not that is going to be there for them when they want it. I have seen that. That is so not what happens. Okay. There is an ownership of the total portfolio by everyone. And so that means you're thoughtful about what we need right now in the portfolio, given the risks that we see, the scenarios that might play out, the the changing probabilities of those scenarios, pricing, industry trends, you know, there's a whole range of things that feed into how we think about what the portfolio needs or wants something that we want to be more robust to. And so it's a it's a top-down conversation with the bottom-up sector heads who'll go, well, what about this? Would this do it? And then we'll kick that around for a while and go, you know, that's not quite what we're after. And, you know, sometimes it might go specifically to an asset if it's big enough, but mostly they'll go to sub-asset, you know, different strategies within the, the hedge fund or different types of infrastructure um, or or sometimes, you know, domestic versus foreign, you know, because it'll have implications for currency and uh, geopolitical risk, et cetera. So that's the top-down conversation. And then it's, yeah, uh, you know, I, uh, I, think I, I think I have a good sense of what it is we're looking for. And then they'll go and club something over the head and bring it back and go, ta-da, you know, and we'll go, yep, that's what we were talking about. So it's a very give and take, listen and, and advise kind of discussion. And and we have a first screen process that means you can bring it early. We're not expecting it to be perfect. Come and, come and talk about the attributes of it and why why we think it's the right thing to be doing. And then we have these sort of committees that it then delegates to from the investment committee, a, a manager review committee and an asset review committee that really kick the tires on from a due diligence perspective. And is this going to pass the, is this pricing right? You know, the IC doesn't talk about all that stuff. It's very much total portfolio. Does this fit? Is this the kind of thing we're looking about? Have we thought about all the reputation risks that might be associated with us? And then it gets 
it gets delegated to these other committees who are, you know, exceptionally diligent about due diligence, you know, about kicking the tires on these on these assets and managers. Another aspect of the future fund is is that by legislation um, you have to use external managers. So how do you go from sort of that internal discussion where you know there's a lot of effort being involved in that and to get to sort of everybody around to that ID, and then you have to communicate it to an external party. How how does that work? You know, I I'd been in the industry a while when the future fund was set up, and and I was one of the ones who thought that that was just a terrible idea that you had to you know bring managers in because that would just be a feeding frenzy and you know that overcharge you and that was a the wrong wrong attitude. I have now flipped on that completely. I and we had this conversation recently when we were talking about our comparative advantages. This is a comparative advantage for us because it frees us up to think about the way in which various things play together in the total portfolio. Um, and it frees us up from the operational risks and other aspects of actually implementing a, a, a portfolio. So yes, all of our strategies will have a manager alongside it. Some of them, the, the manager roles are more or, you know, more or less uh, involved. Uh, but all of the the macro strategies, all of the things we're trying to approve, uh, trying to achieve, have have come from us. Like we, you know, and so a lot of these things are jointly designed. This is the problem we're trying to solve, and we'll work with the manager to come up with something that works. And we take fees incredibly seriously, and and have worked to make ourselves uh, a great partner for people, um, so that we have that bargaining power to go. You know, can we talk again about the, those fees? But we're not silly about that because you're not a good partner if you're not prepared to be a partner uh, you know so we 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 what our job is is to recognize something that's going to add value to the portfolio and then structure fees that pay just for the bit that we want and not things that are not valuable to us so it's a very again nuanced you know clear thinking about what exactly we want to pay for and what we don't want to pay for and and getting an outcome that works for everyone because that's what a partnership is. Yeah. Does this go into sort of the debate around alpha and beta separation? I think it is. If by that you mean you want to pay for alpha, but you don't want to pay for beta. Yes. It is. But sometimes it's not alpha that we're paying for. Sometimes it's something that's defensive. You know, um, there are other things that, you know, you might want to pay for. But definitely the bulk beta, I think the market has shown that, that you know, you can get that incredibly cheaply now. But we don't have a alpha beta separation mindset about things. We know that things come with a range of attributes that are potentially attractive to the portfolio. We do have a system where we'll rebalance for the beta that's in something um, when it comes into the portfolio so that we're not allowing those investment decisions to to move around how much an aggregate equity-like risk that we have. But we're you know well aware of the other attributes it might be bringing and not all of them are going to be what we want, but sometimes you have to take the other bits to get the bits, you know, to get the bits that you want, as long as you're not paying for those other bits because you, you don't value them. Yeah. Partnerships have become uh, sort of a, a popular term, and there's different ways of interpreting that. Um, there, there was sort of the original model, or, or as we see it with the Texas teachers, that really carved out a slice of the portfolio and then said to a manager, okay, now beat us. That's, that's one approach. How do you look at partnerships? I would say that the way we think about partnerships is specialization. This is the bit that we find attractive about your capabilities, and this is the bit we want to leverage. And 
you know, here are the things that we can offer to you in terms of being an attractive partner to you. It's certainly not a one-way thing. And as the sort of capital has become more plentiful, I remember the early days of, of being in this industry, you know, the managers were always lining up to get the asset owner's capital because there was, you know, plenty of managers and, and, and scarce capital. I think that's changed. The good, the good managers get to choose who they want to be in partnership with um, because there's now more, you know, the, the capital is more plentiful. So it's important and it always has been important that we're, we're a good partner. And I think a, a lot of the engagement we have with our partners is not just about the particular strategy that they might be running. We might be running with them, you know, and, and the, the review that you referred to that we did last year very much leveraged the really great thinking of our of our managers. We have, you know, we don't have a, an investment team of 70. We have an investment team of several thousand and they can, you know, move pretty quickly if we're clear about what it is that we're we're looking for and that we we bring our own thinking and our own understanding of us and our mandate to to that. And and we can come up with some some pretty um exciting and innovative ways of thinking about some of these problems. Um, so the the partnership is is more than just their ability to to implement well the strategy that we've paid them for. So one of the reasons why we wanted to do this podcast was was to celebrate the 15 years of the Future Fund. Mm. So as part of that, I thought it would be interesting to see sort of how the asset allocation has changed over time. Okay. And I thought it was remarkable that, you know, the Future Fund is very transparent in the sense that you can pretty much go back to the very first portfolio update which is, I think, dated the 31st of January 2008. And, and there's a couple of things that, that sort of struck me there. And, and I might start going back to sort of the beginning where there was that decision made to pause on in, in investing in equities. And you can sort of see with those updates that you go into the, the financial crisis with, with 75% in cash. By the time it's 2009 and, and pretty much most of the financial crisis uh, has passed, uh, cash is at 15%. So a lot of that money was deployed during the crisis. And I've always wondered, you know, was that just a lucky break to get the future fund set in that period where the, the, there must have been bargains around? How, how do you sort of look at that opportunity? Well, obviously, it could have been a disaster because if the team had continued to push hard to get set just before the crisis, then, you know, we would have lost half the money that had been given to us. So bravery and, and foresight's in there as well. But there is a fortuitousness, obviously, of the timing of the bounce. And, you know, the, the team are nothing if not humble. And they will say, actually, we were reluctant to jump in while the market was just tanking like that. And it was actually a joint board agency discussion where it was the board going, it's time, you know, and and almost perfectly timed it with the bottom of the market. Um, so that that's fortuitous. No one could, no one can pick the bottom of these markets. If you've ever managed money through one of these things, it's so true that it's darkest before the dawn because it, you know, it does not feel safe to be, you know, to be buying in those that environment. So that was hugely uh, value accretive to have paused and then, you know, gone in hard at that point in the market. But th yes, that means that we went from seventy five percent cash to something similar to the cash holding that we still hold today, uh, you know, which bounces around the 15%. The other thing that I noticed when I looked at the asset allocation is that um, the equity portion is more or less stable over the years. It sort of bounces around between 30 and 
And especially when you contrast that to the super innovation funds here, where they, they have sometimes up to 80, 85% in equities, it's, that's quite a, a different way of approaching the portfolio. Can you tell me a little bit about the philosophy behind that? Yes. So I think the um, part of the investment model that we run is that we do believe in, in, in skill-based return and, and that they're worth paying for. And we believe in diversifying as much as we can away from the equity risk premium. Now, for most of the life of the fund, with a little blip for the, the GFC and an even smaller blip for the pandemic, has been a massive bull run in, in equities. Um, so it's really gratifying to see the performance of the fund in an environment that has really favoured equities in the sense that we've, you know, we're getting these, these great performances that match those with a lot of equities, but without the volatility, because we've taken a, you know, a much more diversified approach to it. So what, what are we using instead of equity? We would have a larger private markets program than, than perhaps some comparative um, funds. And, and that was an early decision that has been maintained. And we've, we've developed a really sophisticated process and, and some great relationships with our, with our managers in that space. And alongside that decision to have more private markets is more currency exposure because it's the hedging of the, the private market, of illiquid assets that causes the liquidity crisis, you know, when, when the currency and the equity markets fall at the same time. So the balance of that is that, you know, this defensive position of, of more currency, both developed and emerging market currency exposure than perhaps a typical fund. And then the other, you know, really stark difference is this large portfolio of, of hedge funds. And really using that portfolio thoughtfully rather than it being simply an alpha overlay for, for beta that's elsewhere in the portfolio, we really unpicked it in terms of the different strategies that different hedge fund managers have developed. And we're not just looking for alpha. We might be looking for defensiveness in certain situations. I mean, recently we did a deep dive on the portfolio in terms of our readiness for this higher inflation that we're now seeing. And it's, you know, it's in some of the hedge fund exposures that we've explicitly taken some inflation um, strategies that will perform well in, a, in an inflationary environment. You know, so it's been very, very thoughtful about that alternatives portfolio and and how you can combine the various pieces in it that will serve well the the total portfolio. And it's not just in the alternatives; it's in the the way we uh, have weighted the various components of the private equity portfolio, the various components of the property portfolio. You know, that's also with this total portfolio in mind. And so we have achieved those the returns that we have, which have been great. I think it's ten point eight percent return over ten years against a a CPI plus benchmark that we have of, of 6.2. And that's come with a lot less volatility than you would typically see in a fund that makes those kinds of returns. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the strategic review because um, that sort of is an interesting exercise in, in also the in terms of the pandemic. Partly one of the conclusions, and there's a lot in the review, but one of the conclusions was that perhaps we should take a little bit more risk. And I presume that is related to um, there is an idea that, that returns will be subdued going forward because we have so much of a run-up in equity markets. But can you give us a little bit of an idea of, of, of where that risk might be taken and, and, and sort of how uh, you came to that conclusion? 
Yes, it's always a very um, hard decision to say that structurally we need to take more risk when there's been such a big run up in uh, in risk, the pricing of risk assets. But in in the end, the mandate that we have uh, is currently CPI plus four to five, and the real rate component of that return is negative, and the forecast is for it to to stay pretty low. So how are you going to get enough returns to get a CPI plus four to five? You know, and so we looked at the structural risk. And when I say structural risk, that means the on average over the long term, the level of equities that we think we should have. And we vary it through time, but it's kind of our guide to what we need to hit on average in order to theoretically, but at our best guess of achieving our mandate. And if we'd left that structural risk level where it was, the probability of achieving our mandate was getting too low for us to be able to put hand on heart and say, yep, this is the right portfolio. So it was really, um, it was not a hard decision to make. We we put a number of options to the board about what what changes could be made or or decisions that could be made that were other than increasing the risk appetite. But it was a pretty s- simple decision in the end that if we're going to hit that kind of mandate over the long term, now, it's a different decision about whether or not you increase the risk right then. It just means on average, the average just moved in terms of where you want to hit on average. But that was the decision that this needs to be a riskier fund on that measure in order to get the return that we think we need over the long term to hit our mandate. Yeah. So so we talked a little bit about that allocation to equities, which have remained relatively stable. Is, is that one of the areas where you're looking for more risk or is it more in the private market side? So the um, the simplest way to implement it is to buy more equities. But then over time, you would then put that equity-like risk into something that you like better than equity. So it 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 moves as you sort of get a quick move whenever you want to adjust the the settings of the portfolio using listed equities. And then over time, you would build that out. And you know the review that we did has really verified that you know looking at our comparative advantages in the the current market environment that private markets is something that we want to continue to invest in. We we have a, a way of thinking about our portfolio settings. We, we focus a lot on something called flexibility. And flexibility is the ability not only uh, rebalance the portfolio to the, the level of equity-like risk that we've decided is appropriate for this environment, but it's also the ability in a crisis to be able to put more capital in. You don't want to be caught. You get this crisis and you can't do anything in it. So we want to preserve some of the liquidity for this flexibility purpose. Uh, and we measure that and um, we're very focused on, on, on how much flexibility we have. And we had a budget of sorts where we had set the, the metrics that this much of liquidity will be spent in unlisted liquid assets. And this much is gonna be preserved for flexibility. And when we looked at it and we had the live example of the crisis and the ability to deploy that much capital and how much bigger we've become as a fund, it became clear that it wasn't the best use of capital or best use of liquidity to preserve that much. So, so you know, the first decision we made was we need structurally more risk. And then the second decision we made was we should take some of that preserving of liquidity that we've been doing and invest it in, invest it in private markets. So it's really important. I'm clear here that this is not taking more liquidity risk. You know, it's the same amount of liquidity risk. It was just this pocket that was sort of left off to the side, so that we could buy things in a crisis. And this, we still have that pocket, but it's it was very large before. Now it's not as large as it was, and we've 
and we've redeployed that into into the private markets. So that meant that we could, as a percentage of the portfolio, grow our our private markets exposures. And I, I think the third decision we we made through that strategy review um, is that in a low return world, cost savings and balance sheet efficiency are incredibly important because that one basis point, you know, when the whole total return is 20 basis points is, you know, way more material than it is in an environment where you've got large returns. And so we're putting some effort into uh, being more sophisticated and centralized in how we think about, you know, what would be called a treasury function in a uh, in a corporate in terms of how the balance sheet is used, how, how we manage our break glass liquidity actions through a crisis, just, you know, a, a much more sophisticated and, and concentrated team looking at those things. We, we already did most of the functions, but pulling them together, I th- we think we can eke a few more basis points out of that. Yeah. And then the fourth and final area, and this has been a comparative advantage, kicked off from those early days of being brave enough to pause and then brave enough to jump back in again. Um, we have a very good track record for adding value and reducing risk through our dynamic program. And so, you know, the fourth idea we have is to is to refresh, renew, continue to focus on on that area, resource it a bit more to continue to eke out extra returns through that lens. Yeah. And so after the review, it also made some comments around bonds. What is currently the view on the role of bonds in the portfolio? Because the review states that they have lost some of their defensive qualities. Yeah. And I think there's a, there's a quote in there that said uh, investors have ended up paying to benefit from bond rallies rather than being paid. Yeah. So that made me think, are government bonds just toast? That's a brave thing to say. I think um, being a sovereign wealth fund and being a total portfolio focused, mandate focused fund, we don't have to own bonds. There's no allocation that says you have to own bonds. So we already don't have a, a, a duration portfolio. We use derivatives to to give us exposure to those kinds of uh, price movements where it makes sense. So we are already and, and had been reducing that exposure, um, you know, leading up into the, this rally. Um, so it's not a massive decision for us about, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do with that bonds? We've got cash, obviously, and that that hurts because, you know, you're getting next to no return on that. So, you know, what else can you do that would give you some defensive, you know, qualities within the portfolio? And I think all that's happened is that the relative cost of bonds, because of the asymmetric return profile of them, is higher. So they're just they're just less attractive than they, you know, than they were. I think there's some. I've watched the the term premium disappear to nothing and, and even go negative over the the period of my career, you know, there's some uh, prospect that that term premium will come back, but there's still some risk in that, in the interest rate component of a bond price, because I think it's become clear that the, the, the central banks are prepared to tolerate higher inflation for a period, but at some stage, it's going, they're going to have to meet it with higher interest rates. Now, whether they go a lot higher and stay higher, or whether we we then, uh, you know, we then um, normalize at a at a equilibrium cash rate that's only slightly higher than where we are now. We we don't know, but it's that's the direction of the risk. So it just makes the bonds riskier because of that of that asymmetry. So again, it comes back to the other things we talked about. That what else can you put in the portfolio that you'll give you the defensive characteristics of bonds? We still use cash because it's 
you know, required for liquidity and, and you know, liquidity and, and transaction purposes. Uh, but then it's the defensiveness comes from the, the hedge fund portfolio, the currency positions, you know, some aspects of uh, emerging markets that are less correlated um, and, and part of the world becoming a bit more fractured than it was through the massive run-up in globalization is there's a bit more diversity regionally than there used to be. So that's an interesting thing for us to be, for us to be thinking about. So it's just really working those other things very hard. But because we didn't have a large bond portfolio to try and replace, you know, it hasn't been a big problem. But I, I imagine if it, if someone is sitting on a large amount, you know, a large percentage of a bond portfolio, that's that is difficult. It's difficult to find a a scalable solution um, to to replace that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's finish up with a little bit of crystal ball gazing, uh, stretching out into the future. Okay. One of the things that I've noticed is, you know, at one stage, the future fund will go into a withdrawal mode. It's been pushed out a couple of times, I think. At the moment, the, the year is set for 26, 27. What are your expectations around how the portfolio might shift? Are you already thinking about what it means for the assets you need to hold? Uh, ever and always, but I think the 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 numbers that we're running suggest that the portfolio will continue to grow beyond that withdrawal. The withdrawals are not so huge that the fund, you know, winds down. It does peak, but uh, not for for some time yet. And obviously, that's sensitive to the return assumptions that you're making uh, around the portfolio. But basically, at the twenty six twenty seven date is you know one of the reasons why we want to have a little bit more cash or liquidity sitting around because we need to be able to make those withdrawals without compromising our asset programs um so it's it's not it's not profound it's something that we're we're thinking about but you know over time as the the fund peaks and and starts to to come off absolutely you know it it will speak to the need for more liquid assets and a different way of thinking about it yeah so 15 years of the future fund, um, you mentioned there will be a, a book that will be published on, on, on the website and uh, we'll put a link in, in the synopsis of this podcast so that people can find it easily. Um, what else can we expect around it? Are you guys having a, a big office party? <laughs> Not a big office party in this environment, but we, we, we celebrated it in a very modest way at the end of last year because of the COVID restrictions. Um, the staff got a sort of a pre a pre-version of the book, not as pretty as the book that, that the, the public will get, but just so that they can get an early version of the text so we could celebrate who we are. We've moved into new premises, so there is a, a celebration uh, to, to open the building and to um, sort of launch the book in its, in its public form. Um, but again, that will, be, uh, that will be modest in the, in the environment that we have at the moment. Yeah, fair enough. It fits the environment. Yeah. Well, Sue? Thank you very much for participating in this podcast. Thank you. It's, uh, always appreciated. And uh, all the best with, with the fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.